0: Hi, you're listening to Good is in the Details. I am your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and today we are going to be talking about the art of writing. Joining me is author, filmmaker, Stephen Elliott. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Nice to see you. So, most uh, famous work, would you say, is The Adderall Diaries, your memoir?
1: Yeah, that would be the best known work for sure.
0: Okay, best selling
1: um, yeah, yeah best selling and you know cuz they made a movie out of it mm-hmm. and so it's much better known than my other books cuz cuz my other books weren't made into a movie with any big stars and so forth
0: so when you were working so Adderall Diaries was your was it your 6th or 7th book
1: it was my 7th book
0: when you were writing it did you know okay this is something special like did you have any kind of a sense as you were writing it that this was going to be big
1: hmm, no no i didn't know that and uh, most publishers passed on it, you know, and we sold it to uh, Grey Wolf for $20,000, uh-huh. which is not a huge book advance, um, though it was a big, a pretty big book advance for Grey Wolf Press because they're a smaller press. Mm-hmm. But uh, Norton had actually offered 30000 and I turned them down and went with Grey Wolf um, because it seemed like it was better to have 20000 from a small press, where it was like I knew I'd be the front of the list.
0: It's a bigger investment, from them, as a, I see. Yeah, yeah, as
1: opposed to like thirty thousand from Norton is nothing. I know I'd be the last thing they'd be thinking about. Okay. Um, and that was a mistake. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. Well, since since Adderall Diaries is your biggest, would you would you say that's your biggest?
1: It's the most popular book yeah. that I've written, okay. definitely.
0: So, tell me a bit about what your day is like. You're an established writer. How much much a part of your day is writing? Is it the start of your day, the middle of your day, the end of your day?
1: Currently, you know, I try to write in the mornings for an hour or two, Mm -hmm. um, which is, I've always done that for years and years. Yeah. Though I haven't really been writing anything in the past year so much, you know, occasionally I kind of get on a roll. I have published um, two essays and an interview in the past year, so I haven't been doing much writing at all you know
0: okay well you had your project driven which was a great web series and tell me a little bit about that because that was a different type of writing for you so what what drew you to saying you know what i'm going to do screenwriting and i'm going Mm -hmm. to
1: uh well initially initially it was because uh james franco optioned the rights to the adderall diaries Uh uh-huh and I was waiting for them to make the movie out of The Adderall Diaries, and it was just taking too long. It didn't seem like it was more complicated than it needed to be. Yeah. And so I wrote a script called Cherry. I was able to raise money and shoot that movie long before they would even started shooting The Adderall Diaries. Yeah. And so that kind of got me into, like, filmmaking. Because I I wrote the script, and I thought I was going to find a director, (laughs) but the movie was, you know, pretty low budget, like half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. And so... I had all these famous people like James Franco and um, Lily Taylor and Deb Patel. So there's all these like well known people, but not that, you know, half a million dollars, not that much money. And I, I couldn't find a director who I really trusted and thought, you know, this person's going to be really good mm-hmm. at that budget point. And also, the movie was set in the world of porn, which is a world that I was very familiar with because I had been a sex worker and I had worked in porn a certain amount. And so. I decided to direct it myself, mm-hmm. and that got me into screenwriting.
0: Okay, let's get into what you just said there. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, because there's a couple of interesting things about this. First of all, your writing, you have really mastered the art of memoir and nonfiction. And I've read in some of your interviews, you've said how honesty is so essential. Was there... Does that sound right? You're looking at me funny. Uh,
1: yeah, that's. sounds that right. your work has
0: to be honest. And so... What is it like about talking about sexuality in in this fashion? Was there did you have any reservation or anything that you felt nervous about saying, okay, this is part of my story and I'm just putting it out there in the world?
1: I don't remember. I do think that um, you know, when you're talking about honesty in writing, it's so different from what people think of as honesty. Okay. You know, like because normally when you're talking about honesty, You know, it's just not lying. Okay. Right? And so if you don't know anything, you can't lie about anything. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because to lie requires intent. And so it's very easy not to lie. But when you're talking about honesty in writing, that's not really good enough. You know, like, to be honest in your writing, you have to, like, know yourself really well. You have to kind of question yourself and be cynical of your own motivations and what you think you know about yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you have to question judgments you've made of other people. You know, honesty is basically bordered by self-knowledge. Okay. Uh, so in a lot of ways, writing, that kind of writing is a quest for self-knowledge. Because it's, it's, you're pursuing perfect honesty, which is not actually attainable, because perfect honesty would require perfect self-knowledge, but the self is continually changing. Mm-hmm. And so it's this thing, it's like a, you know, it's like a carrot on a stick. You never quite make it. You know, nothing you write is ever actually fully honest because you, ch- you end up changing. And yeah. so it's honest for a while, and it ceases to be honest. It ceases <laughs> to be true. You know, like I said, there's an example I used to give when I was teaching uh, writing from experience classes. I would talk about this guy, some magazine writer, had written a, a profile of Roger Ebert. <clears throat> and this guy had been nominated or had won the last two years in a row, I think, had won the National Magazine Award for uh-huh. articles he'd written. And he wrote a blog post about not being nominated for his profile of Roger Ebert that everybody said was a masterpiece, you know. And and he said he was just being honest. Yeah. That is the exact opposite of what I'm talking oh, about, I right? Cuz that yeah. is really boring. Right? Yeah. Like there's nothing interesting in that. If he had said, "Oh, yeah, I didn't deserve the award when I won it." Yeah. That's more interesting. That's honesty. Okay. Because to recognize that almost certainly there's a better essay or article out there than the one that you wrote Yeah. that was not recognized that nobody found it it was like in some small journal who knows where the chances of them actually awarding the best article
2: Yeah.
1: award to the actual best article is very slim. Yeah. So to be honest would be to recognize that you didn't deserve the award when you won it. That's a level of like introspection and cynicism you know the vertical dimension of honesty where you're really digging and you're like wait a second you're questioning everything okay. and now it's interesting right it's the first not just not- the
0: facts it's an authentic reflection
1: yeah but it's an authentic reflection based on like cynicism and like real like questioning turning things over like you know uh, allowing inconvenient truths to enter into your thoughts you know like like if you 're writing about somebody and you 're saying this is a person who 's just evil and awful and they and 're just completely in the wrong and they have no redeeming qualities, that might be what you think, but that 's not honest writing
2: mm-hmm. because
1: very few people like that exist I mean those are like psychopaths and they 're already probably in jail for murder or something you know <laughs> okay. like honest writing would require trying to understand Their why
0: motivations the other and, yeah, okay. why
1: the other person feels the way they do it. it it kind of requires giving the other person the benefit of the doubt yeah. it's it's an empathetic exercise because you're seeing the world through their eyes you're mm-hmm. like in order to do that like do you think that they think they're wrong
2: because mm-hmm.
1: they, most people don't think they're bad people most people don't do bad things intentionally so in order to write from somebody else's perspective, you have to like really put yourself in their shoes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's empathetic writing. It's not really in in fashion right now, but that's the kind of writing that I like to read. And that's that's what I was, uh, you know, struggling to uh, attain. So
0: who would be, so in your own writing then, who would be the most challenging person in your life? Did you granted that leeway for to yeah. say I'm going to understand? Excuse you.
2: <laughs> you no, I mean you? when
1: when when I wrote uh, the Adderall Diaries, the person I had to deal with a couple people, but mainly I had to deal with my father.
0: I thought who, you were going to say that, but I wasn't sure.
1: You know, I mean, I really disliked him so much, and we were in constant conflict for all my life, and it was very obvious during the writing of it that like unless it wasn't important that I that he understand my truth because mm-hmm. I was the one trying to tell the story. Yeah, for me to tell a story, I had to understand his truth, and I had to stop thinking about how important it was for him to understand my truth,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because which was not important at all. You know, so I had to accept. I I had to, I had to accept and learn that, you know, for example, I left home when I was 13 and slept on the streets for a year, and then I became ward of the state. Uh, like in my version, I'm an abused child, and I'm a homeless child, and I'm coming from a neglected, a neglectful household. Mm-hmm. And I stayed in custody. Now, my father's version of that same story: I'm a spoiled child who didn't w- refuse to listen to adults or take any orders, and I could have come home any time I wanted. Okay. You know, and I had to learn that what I was saying was my truth. What I was saying was true, and what my father was saying was also true. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that these truths contradicted each other, they were nonetheless both true. My father was not intentionally lying. He believed this. Okay. It was true to him. And, you know, the, the fact that two things can be true and also be completely irreconcilable, you know, that um, most of the time what we're talking about uh, are interpretations Mm-hmm. You know there's like there's memory, there's interpretations, and there's facts, and there are very few facts, you know, like this is a table that's a fact, mm-hmm. this is a wooden table. I can prove that this is a wooden table right here between mm-hmm. us, but I cannot prove it's a good looking wooden table you know i I can't yeah. uh, like there are a thousand things I could say about this table that are interpretations yeah the that i can I can there's only a handful of facts. It's got four legs, you know, it's got, you know, it's made out of wood. Uh, I could say it's a short table, and that's not a fact. It might look to you and I like, oh, this is a short table, but that, that is not inherently factual. And that is almost everything that we think of as a fact mm-hmm. is either a memory or an interpretation or a combination of the two.
0: I think, um, you know, you tease me about my existentialism background, but you're reminding me of a quote that I love of Kierkegaard, where he says, subjectivity is the case in point, that he thought that was the, that the history of philosophy had been neglecting. They had, they had been so interested in universal truths that they had completely neglected mm-hmm. what is subjectivity as interesting in and of itself. And it sounds like your writing is delving into that subjectivity is the case in point and that that in and of itself is interesting and a conclusion, a nice neat conclusion, mm-hmm. isn't required for it to be interesting.
1: Uh, I think that's, I think that's all very true. Thank you. Yeah. Mm, that's very, very smart. You're a very smart person. People probably tell you that a lot, right?
0: You know, I had sarcasm in
1: your expression. No, no sarcasm. Um, um, well, but I mean, but basically, you know, the truth in a lot of ways is, is unknowable, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that it, it shifts and moves. You know, people are always presenting things, especially now, you know, within the age of Twitter, you know, people are like, you know, fat, and they'll say this is a fact, and they'll, they'll lay out some like arguments about like transgender theory or something as a mm-hmm. fact. And you're like, this is not a fact. This is a wood table. Yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, facts are such a tiny, tiny percentage, such a sliver of what we think of as truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that overwhelming, overwhelmingly, truth, what we think of as truth, is not is based on interpretation and memory. Yeah. And not fact, so you know. So that's that's the thing, you know. Of trying to um, trying to write honestly would be to like recognize that you can be just as wrong as the other person. Uh-huh. You know that you both have you both have your you both have your truths, and they're true. To, they're they're still both true, even though they contradict one another.
0: I think that that's one of the draws to. To memoir is that you realize what you're what you're getting out of it. It's not the same thing as picking up a history book. Um, that you are aware that when you're as for for the reader's experience, mm-hmm. the the truth that you want to get to is another human being's experience of the world, and mm-hmm. that that is really what you're looking for. But if you're looking for some sort of a set of facts or something, you would pick up a radically different type of a text.
1: Maybe I I think that I think that you know a really good memoir is often a journey where the author doesn't actually know how they feel about something very important. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of a detective story because you're following them as they explore something and they try to come to terms with how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. And so you're turning over rocks and looking at clues and you're trying to figure something out. And as long as the author is reporting back their findings honestly... You'll follow them on that journey because yeah. it's a it's inherent it's a mystery, and there's an inherent tension that neither you nor the author knows what you're going to find.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know so if a memoir starts out where like you have a conclusion already and you know exactly the point you mean to get to, those are generally not interesting memoirs. But when an author starts on a journey and, and is honestly trying to find the answer to these questions. Then it's usually very compelling to follow to follow them, you know. So that's why I, I would talk about students. I talk to them about like you know, the importance of honesty. Mm-hmm. This is what honest writing is. You know, an actual, you know, you're you're seriously exploring. You're open to finding out whatever you find out. You know, if you already know the answer, then you're not exploring honestly. Yeah. You know, you're you're forcing the information into you know predetermined shape. Whereas like if you don't know the answer but you're really looking for it, then it's then it's going to be very interesting. And I'll follow you on that mystery, you know, on, on that, on that uh, expedition, you know.
2: As
0: somebody who's, who's re- who are, let's see, what would be a couple of memoirs that stand out to you as, okay, these are, this is really good work.
1: Um, what comes to your mind? Uh, in Pharaoh's Army by Tobias Wolf I think of that. Oh, okay. Um, this Boy's Life is also very good by Tobias Wolf. Another Bullshit Night in Suck City by Nick Flynn the white album by joan didion uh the year of magical thinking by joan didion also really great so there's a lot of great examples i mean i'm trying to think of an example where it's just really good because it's honest because those are those books are so well written on a sentence level Mm -hmm. that they succeed you know but in reality if a book is really really honest even if the sentences aren't that good you'll still read it to the end because honesty is like so compelling to read
0: well that's like um, a movable feast Mm -hmm. Hemingway does not have beautiful prose in fact I have flat out told my students if they ever wrote an essay like this they would be I would not read it it's the same it's like five five words that are used over Mm -hmm. and over again and yet it totally it works Mm -hmm. Um, that's something that's actually fascinating about it
1: was definitely into honesty
0: but it's not beautiful prose Mm -hmm. or I don't know well
1: well I would disagree with that yeah (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah
1: yeah mm-hmm. i love Hemingway's was to me that's you know a movable can... feast well i don't remember a, mo- was... a movable feast i haven't, I haven't read that in a, a million years but i like hemingway's writing generally
0: mm-hmm. i like his writing too well i was i was surprised by by that i think i liked um midnight in paris so much mm-hmm. the film that that's why i ended up getting a movable feast and i was just surprised at the sentence structure No, okay. Well, you love it. Fine.
1: (laughs) I I don't remember Moo Feast that well, but I love Hemingway's sentences. I mean, I think Hemingway is a master of the sentence. Like, he is Mm -hmm. the best sentence writer in the history of writing, maybe.
0: Okay, but when I read, when I read, that interests me that you say that. Because when I read your work, I see that there's, you have, you have more than, you have more than Hemingway. So Hemingway, it just seems to, is so minimal but when i, I read your work you really have this knack for an attention for detail that is you do it really well it's never superfluous but it somehow works it's it's just this extra detail that is able to place the reader where you are so it can be you mentioned the uh, you know the design of a tile in the restaurant or
1: I mean, I think what you're talking about is what Hemingway did so well, though. Hemingway even even wrote about the iceberg, you know, like Uh the good writing is an iceberg. Yes. Right? So you just have this like little piece above the water, Mm -hmm. but there's so much underneath it and you feel the iceberg. Mm -hmm. We don't know why, but you do, you know, and that the writer is like not telling you 99% of the stuff that the writer knows. or just keeping because it's too much. You know, all you can really show the reader is just the tip of the iceberg, but the reader can feel the iceberg underneath it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what you're really, uh, really doing. Um, I think if you look at Happy Baby, it's like super, it's super minimal and very um, influenced by Hemingway. Because, you know, Happy Baby has no backstory and no narration at all, mm-hmm. uh, which was very, which is very, you know, Hemingway-esque. Like, that's kind of a, a thing that Hemingway really brought to the world. Like, that style of writing with like, you know, no, no backstory, no narration, just scene based, you yeah. know. And so Happy Baby is almost a fundamentalist text that way, stylistically. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I got stuck for years and couldn't write again after Happy Baby for that reason. And so The Adderall Diaries is almost like the opposite. It's very discursive, and it follows every possible tangent, mm-hmm. you know, often often to find out that there's nothing there, and to double back and come back onto the main narr- narrative, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, So it's just kind of like a you know, perpetual exploration, whereas um, Happy Baby was like, There's like no adjectives or adverbs in like the entire book. Uh It's like, it's it's really extraordinary. It's extremely minimal.
0: So let me get to some of the, let's get to some of the technique then. If I can pick your brain about this. For someone who is writing, when they are editing their work, what is something that they should be looking for when it comes to editing a draft?
1: Well, I mean, that's the right question, I guess, because editing is where it happens. You know, you get the word in the page, but then how do you make it good? I always look to get those sentences down to just the minimum.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, like I'm the type of person that writes like, a, like, you know, like the Adderall Diaries is well over a thousand pages to get down to those two hundred pages. You know what I mean? Oh, you're okay. just like you cutting everything all the time. You know, like you just like it's, you know, you got to just get rid of every. You just, you got, for me, like I'm just I'm just continually like weeding. The stuff out.
0: Well, I remember when I was working on my dissertation that somebody said it's like a Christmas tree. That at the very top it's small. You just have this one idea, and then it gets bigger, and then you trim it mm-hmm. bigger and trim, mm-hmm. and then you're just left with a little bit at the end, the trunk. Yeah. Would you say that that's?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean. So I'm...
0: what are you, when you say you're getting rid of stuff, what are you getting rid of? Like you're reading it and you realize this needs to go. This is no longer valuable.
1: You should. I think that you know every word you should have rewritten your story so much that you can defend every word choice in wow. the book. Like every single word is the best possible word and it's doing as much work as it can possibly do, right? Okay. Like, you know, is there a better verb than that verb? You know, can I get? Can I make the sentence one word less? You know, it's very, for me, and you know, it's different for everybody, but that the reader's time is really considered. Uh-huh. You know that like it's really it's not any longer than it has to be, like every like I'm, I'm, I want to start as close to the action as possible, as close to that main event, yeah, as I possibly can get, and I don't want any extra words, and you know my favorite novels are almost always around like two hundred pages, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's because we're expected we expect novels to be like three hundred and fifty pages, mm-hmm. three hundred and thirty pages, and the authors that like refuse to do that. And say no, this is this book is fifty five thousand words. That's the right length. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't be any longer than it absolutely has to be. And if it's not a novel, if it's a short story, that's fine. Like you don't make it, don't try to make anything longer. Like it should be the actual, absolute minimum amount. You know, and, and yeah. it should have a. Should, but the thing about like writing a thousand pages and then like narrowing it down to two hundred pages is like that's all iceberg. Like you okay. have, you'll feel all the all the stuff that you've taken out. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I'm just thinking of some of my Roald Dahl does such great short stories. Those mm-hmm. are some of my favorites. It's a whole world in yeah. just a small.
1: I've never read any Roald Dahl. Oh my Dahl.
0: god! Right, we're fixing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll love it. Well, when you're saying this about the novel, is that more of an American thing? Am I am I wrong with that? That Americans do the short novel. That just historically novels.
1: Oh, I don't know about that. I mean. If you look at like every like every every like literary white dude who's my age, it seems like their favorite novel is Infinite Jest, ah, you know. Okay, and uh, I definitely don't feel qualified. You
0: mean not Atlas Shrugged?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it's Atlas Shrugged. I don't think literary <laughs> dudes read Atlas Shrugged too much. Um, I but I that think that
0: might be one of the longest books in the English language, it's up there,
1: but I, I just think that I, I don't know anything about comparative lit. You know, I'm not well-read enough to say what we do versus what other people do. mm mm-hmm. um, But, no, I, I don't think that American novels are particularly short. I mean, you know, when I think of, like, the great novels that I love, I think of, like, The Lover. Uh, okay. The Stranger. You know, those are short French novels. Yeah. Right? So, and then I think of, like, Bolaño in 2666, which is, like, 2,000 pages. Oh, And yeah, that's Chilean. Yeah. So... No, I don't think that we've got any kind of market cornered on on short novels versus long. Uh, but the style, I, I tend to prefer novels that are shorter that have like, you know, they just they just often feel like they're tighter.
0: So who who inspires you? I mean, you told me about um, They Should Read On Writing by Stephen King. But That's are there book. other people, from maybe from when you were younger, who um, work that you read, or somebody who inspired you and thought, I want to... Do what they do.
1: I mean, definitely the first writer that I felt that way about really strongly was Charles Bukowski. Okay. You know, but I'd been writing since I was like nine. I was writing. I just had boxes of writing. And when I came across Bukowski, I think I was eighteen or nineteen or something. And it was like, I read him, and I was like, oh, this is this is how this is what I've been doing. This is how I write. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that I was allowed to do that. Like I did it already, but I didn't. It never occurred. I, I, I wasn't trying to be a writer. I didn't study writing. I was a history major in college. I didn't. I didn't have any thought that I would make a living as a writer. Yeah. You know, I was a complete outsider. I mean, I, I didn't have an agent for my first four books that I published.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so I, I came in it from as a from a real outsider perspective, and Bukowski was a real outsider. And reading him, and actually, like, that was completely life changing. You know, later I was very influenced by De- by Dennis Johnson. And Michelle T was very influential. I went to a Hunter Thompson phase, and I was a political reporter for a while. Yeah. But the first real huge inspiration that really made made me think, like, oh, I can be a writer. Like, this is what I do is acceptable as a writer.
2: Yeah.
1: um, Was Bukowski, you know?
0: Okay. So can I pivot slightly to the discussion about writing? Let's say what was the class you did was like on sensual writing or kink or erotic or oh
1: uh, yeah something like that. Wait.
0: <laughs> so okay, so we've we've covered memoir writing and sentence structure. Mm. Um, what is let's say what are a couple of of rules or things to pay attention to when it comes to writing of that nature, something that's erotic.
1: Well, I think the first thing is if it's erotic, if it's, if it's erotica. Mm-hmm. Right. Erotica is a, is a sub-genre or subset of literary fiction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So that's totally different from romance. Right. Like an, oh, yeah. An erotic novel is not the same as a romance novel. A romance novel is a genre novel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in a genre novel, the plot is the most important thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In a literary novel, a literary story... The its character the character, character okay. is more important. You can still have good plot, mm-hmm. but if the character is the most important thing, then it's literary. That's the definition of literary fiction. Okay. And so, in my opinion,
0: no, I, so, I can so, I can see that.
1: So erotica is a genre, is a liter is a subset of literary fiction. And so, what happens? In- erotica
0: doesn't require a story. I think erotic romance is romance with explicit.
1: With no, explicit uh, literature erotic no? uh, uh rom- anything romance related is genre okay and so the plot is the most important thing you know and or the, or the sex is the most important thing
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: but the character is not the most important thing okay but erotica you know or literary erotica or erotic literature is just is just literary fiction where the um with the central act the th- so in a in a literary story or, or In a literary story, something happens to the character, Mm -hmm. and that character is never the same. Okay. In erotic fiction, or erotica, that thing that happens to the character is erotic, is a sexual act. Okay. So you don't have to be turned on by it. Like, erotica is not porn. Okay. Whereas erotic romance is essentially porn. Okay. You know, like a romance novel is essentially written porn, generally for women. Okay. Who prefer narrative porn? There are a lot of studies that show that actually that <laughs> okay. that that, that, na- that narrative is very important in female porn mm-hmm. and less important in male porn. Daniel Bergner wrote a whole thing on that in the New York Times Magazine. So, but in an erotica story where the the the, the sexual act is the instigating event, yeah. But you don't have to find it erotic. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to personally be turned on by it. That's not the point of it. Okay. You know. So okay. so something happens during the sexual act or the, or the erotic moment that changes a character forever. And that's, okay. you know, erotic fiction. There's a realization or something about the, about the partner, about, about themselves, and they're never the same. Uh-huh. But it's not important that it's like... It shouldn't matter whether or not the person reading it, what their sexual orientation is. I see. It should be irrelevant. Okay. Because the point is not to be turned on. The point is to use the the sexual act to illuminate the character
0: oh that's interesting okay so when it comes to when it comes to your own writing what are some things that you feel like you are still learning or things that you the new things that you want to try like you know what what have you accomplished and then you're thinking okay this is the next step in my writing career i haven't written in this way or told this type of story i mean what is I... something new you want to try
1: I don't know. I mean, I do think that every time I write a book, I feel like I'm really learning how to write a book again.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, so I feel like I'm starting over every time. I generally don't want to do whatever it was I've done already. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I don't really know the answer to that, except that I know that it's not the things I've already written. (laughs) You know, Uh like, I think all my books are really, really different. Other people have told me that's not true, but I really think that they're really very different stylistically.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm not really sure, you know, like I haven't really written anything seriously in like, you know, a solid year probably. So I would just love to be in the middle of like a longer literary project where yeah. I had that thing that I did every day that I was working on, you know, that I could look forward to finishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what that is, when that will come away. again. Well, let's
0: see, You've got you've got essays, you've got memoirs, you've got fiction, you've got poems, you've got... Uh, the web series driven. I mean, you've written a lot of. I'm just wondering what is on the what is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it could be a <laughs> it could be a biography. You know? Uh huh. I don't know what it is. You know, I don't. You know, I, I mean, one thing is that I'm very um, respectful of inspiration. Yeah. So when something inspires me, I follow it because that is the, the that is the biggest gift
0: investing in important. the world you know what? I think that's important I think that with with my own work even though it's in academia if um, I'm reading something and my gut is just telling me this is interesting just I allow myself to go to go with it and somehow it ends up working out into an idea
1: I feel like for me every project I've ever been part of and I don't think it, I don't think most people are not as bad about this as I am but I'm always in a race against my own enthusiasm mm-hmm. if I don't if I'm inspired by something, and I don't follow it right away, I will pretty quickly not be inspired by it. Mm-hmm. And this is why I don't, I, I don't pitch. You know, I don't pitch a book and try to sell it and then write it, because by the time I sell it, I won't be inspired to write it anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the book won't turn out very well, and I'll be stuck writing this thing that I don't want to write. So okay. instead, I just write it. Like, I, I, I'm like I'm in a hurry, because I know the, inspi- the inspiration is going to go away. It's going to run out.
0: Oh yes, I see. What so, you mean. Yes, you get so, tired of your
1: own. Yeah, yeah. Once I'm once I'm inspired, I follow it very quickly, and I stay with it for as long as I can. Yeah, you know, I try to get as many words on the page before the inspiration goes. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the main thing. It's just like you know, being being inspiration available and yes. respecting the inspiration, and then following it to the best of your ability. Because at, le- at least three times I've started a novel and gotten like or a, short, a nonfiction book and gotten a hundred pages in. And then, like it just—I've just watched the inspiration just kind of fly off, like like the dragon at the end of Game of Thrones, you know? Just like like, oh shit, that's my inspiration. <laughs> how the fuck! How Respe- many the dragon back? That's my inspiration. Inspiration. <laughs> and it's gone.
0: No, I you you know you are absolutely right because I know, I mean I know at times when I've been locked into there's something I need to work on and I'm very excited at the beginning and to keep that momentum that is that is the work be, the excited part at the beginning is not the work right. but it's making it seeing it to the end
1: yeah so to keep the inspiration for me i mean it means like i got to come to it every day i yes. can't let some other project intrude in the middle of it I think i'm going to then come back to it my inspiration is going to be sitting there waiting patiently for me that's not that, that's never how it happens
0: yeah my thesis advisor he said what concerns you and I still to this day when I sit down to work on something, I have to come back to that question. And then that's what can launch me into writing. Yeah.
1: That's a good that's a good quote.
0: Oh yeah? Mm-hmm. It's very smart. <laughs> what concerns you? It was a great are you writing it down? Yeah. <laughs> so so as a writer, you've always got a notebook with you. I do. Notebook have and pen. A,
1: always. That is true. Okay.
0: So I wanna I wanna wrap this up with um. A couple of things i've told my students with writing first of all i want them to read i have students who come to me sometimes when it comes to their term paper and they say i don't know what to write and i say we have to read you know just keep searching searching i do have a couple of pet peeves that i've learned over the years Mm -hmm. i can't stand so and basically those two words and i tell the students they're not allowed to use them (laughs) Yeah. And so and basically would are superfluous words or Mm -hmm. basically seems to um, contract an idea, which is the last thing you want to do in something like a term paper. So those are my pet peeves. But I'm wondering, you don't necessarily have to give a pet peeve. But let's just say we've got a 19 or a 20 year old, they have to crank out a term paper. Do you have any advice for getting them through the writing process?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I I was not able to write a term paper when I was nineteen or twenty. Steven,
0: this is not going to help my like, students. So, listen to this.
2: <laughs>
0: no. Okay, well know. let's let's make it let's make it more general. Um, do you start with with an outline, or you've got your notebook with you all the time, so when inspiration hits, you can write something down? Yeah,
1: I don't work off of outlines. Okay. Uh, the only thing I've ever used an outline for is to trick myself into staying interested. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the way I fake myself out and okay. I outline something, but. I never actually use the outline. You know, it's just something to do to kind of keep you inspired, basically. Okay. Um, No, I I think, you know, write the way Stephen King writes, which is start with a situation and just follow it and see what happens. Okay. Don't start with inclusion. Don't start, if you write write off an outline, you know, but that's probably how you're supposed to do it with academic papers. I, I don't know. I'm not very good at those kind of papers. But I think the best writing comes when you don't know where you're going.
0: No, I think that's important. Well, for philosophy papers, I want my students to to be able to consider more than one position. Because mm-hmm. we have a tendency to get locked into, like you say, your own conclusion. Yeah. And then everything is pointing toward that. And then what's missing is, is there another possibility, another way of looking at this scenario? Yeah, I
1: mean, what you're looking for ultimately is structure. Yeah. But uh, I saw a famous writer once give a talk where somebody asked about structure. And he was like, oh, you you want you're asking about writer's block. Okay. You know? um which i thought was very funny you know like when when the, when it becomes obvious the structure will present itself that's when you're but the, but not until for me that usually happens very late mm-hmm. in the game but uh, you know if i was if i was your students if i was like ask, talking to a student about like writing a paper i would say like ask yourself like what do you believe mm-hmm. and then write a paper while you, where you try to disprove that
0: ooh that's good Okay, I'm going to use that.
1: There you go. First um, one's free.
0: Last, <laughs> the last thing. Is there um, any writer or any book out there lately that has really grabbed your attention that you have found this is an exciting read?
1: Mm-hmm. I feel like we talked
0: and there must have been something, but I can't.
1: I mean, I've, I've been rereading Bukowski re- recently. Oh, really? Yeah. Which one? Uh, first, I started with Fectotum, and I'm just now finishing um, Hamon Rai. Okay. And I'm probably going to reread Women. That was my first
0: Bukowski
1: book. That's a really funny one to start with.
0: (laughs) I was like, what is this?
1: I mean, he's a really misogynistic guy in his writing. I can see how it's funny. You think, like, I can't imagine a person writing like this anymore because, you know, he'd be. He's he's an offensive writer. But I tend to like that in my writers. But so. I like that and nobody's writing that way anymore because people are so afraid now of the cancel police and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, people are worried about saying the wrong thing and, and, you know, being canceled forever, having come back, you know, on Twitter or whatever. And so, you know, not that long ago, we would really celebrate, you know, being honest and raw and putting yourself out there. And I don't think people are doing that that much anymore. Yeah. So I don't know what, what to do about that. You know, it's not really my problem. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot, because there's already a lot of st- good stuff that's written anyway, so I'm just gonna go find the stuff that's already been written.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you.
2: It was
1: my pleasure.
0: <laughs> okay, bye.